on episode one of This Calling. I'm Roger Patience. I help leaders in higher education to use data to improve the way they work and the way they serve students. And I'm also an Episcopal priest. Welcome to This Calling, Stories of Vocation. I'm Chris Arnold. I'm a Christian who used to be an atheist. I'm a software engineer who became a priest. I believe that God calls us each to our own unique and crazy path in this life, and I love to listen to the stories of others, where they are, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. I think that listening to the stories of others helps us with our own calling. So I hope you enjoy this episode of This Calling, episode number one, with my guest, Roger Patience. So you're bivocational. Precisely. <laughs> All right. Church buzzword. What does that mean? So you've got a, a day job and then a weekend job. In a way. Uh, I think in the church we use the word bivocational uh, kind of poorly. Uh, too often what we mean is a priest or a minister who has to cobble together a bunch of church jobs because none of them pays well, or a person who has to get a second job to make ends meet because their church job doesn't pay well. Um, I have always thought of bivocational as meaning having two vocations and intertwining the two uh, all the way along. And so I've been ordained my entire adult life. I've had a secular career, so to speak, my entire adult life. It's the intertwining of the two that I think is what bivocational means. Okay, well, that's great. You hear that, listeners? You're getting two vocation stories for the price of one. This is a great way to start <laughs> off this new podcast. So how did you get here? How did you wind up uh, in this calling, these <laughs> these callings? <laughs> you know, uh I'll start with the with the church calling first, so to speak. Uh, that that sense of calling to ministry. Uh, one of the earliest photos in my family's photo album is a picture taken when I was probably about two and a half years old. I'm sitting in a chair in my family's living room, and I have my father's stole around my neck and his Bible in my lap. Uh, my father was an Episcopal priest, and my mother's father. My grandfather was also an Episcopal priest. Um, my godfather, when I was baptized, was an Episcopal bishop. Uh, so I sometimes joke that I never really stood a chance. You know, from the age of two, <laughs> there's been a picture in my mind of of me as a minister. Uh, and so that mm-hmm. has lasted uh, pretty much all the way along. Um, I think of that when I think of uh, as a college senior doing the kind of discernment that all of us do about, you know, what kind of job should I have or what can I do with my degree? <laughs> what am I going to do when I grow up? Yeah, yeah, exactly. My questions were, were all about, uh, could I do this career and also be ordained? You know, could I do this career and also be ordained? You know, I took a lot of, uh, classes in the hard sciences, you know, chemistry and geology, uh, geography, took a lot of classes in English. I ended up as an English major. Um, but I was always wondering, you know, what career could I have and could I also be ordained? Uh, so as a college senior, I went through the church's discernment process uh, to see if I had a vocation to the priesthood and to see if I might go to seminary. Um, and I did get approved. Uh, the bishop uh, approved me to go to seminary, but he said, take a year and uh, you know, get some 
life experience, get some work experience, you know, come back to me in a year and I'll send you to seminary. Um, and in that year, I, as I look back on it, it was a pretty busy year. In that year, I got married and moved to the big city and worked full time for an Episcopal church as the secretary um, and sexton, uh, two part time jobs to cobble together. <laughs> um, but I worked full time for the church and my spiritual life tanked. And I thought I started thinking to myself, well, I've been thinking about going to seminary. And I don't like working full-time for the church. What's going on here? <laughs> Maybe I need to rethink uh, this vocation. Uh, and so that, in a way, in a kind of sideways way, that led me into my secular career. And then I was looking for a different job. I, I left that church after a year and got a short job with another Episcopal agency. Um, but that job introduced me to the man that I would work for at the Field Museum of Chicago, the Natural History Museum in Chicago, where I spent the first 10 years of my career. So in a way, my, my secular career was prompted by this discovery about not wanting to work full-time for the church. And, and, you know, in the way that many of us find jobs, you know, I found it through a connection of somebody that I worked with. Yeah. Uh, and, but then shortly after finding the job at the Field Museum, uh, I was introduced to the notion of the diaconate in the Episcopal Church. I had known deacons a little bit, but they're pretty rare on the ground in the Episcopal mm -hmm. Church. Um, but I was introduced to the concept of the diaconate, and it, it sort of rang the chime, you know, that, well, here's a, a way of being ordained that assumes you have a day job, that assumes you have a different life outside of the church, that assumes you're not oh. full-time working for the church. And, and that seemed to click really well. So after a couple of years, uh, after leaving the, the parish that I was working for, I entered the discernment process in a new diocese, but this time discerning for the uh, diaconate as a calling. And this was in Chicago? This was in Chicago uh, at okay. this time. First time in yeah. Springfield, in the Diocese of Springfield when I was in college. Okay. The second Southern time Illinois. in the Diocese of Chicago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so... Yeah, so that kind of was the start. So the start was, you know, this long-time sense of ordination as the destination, um, but tweaked by my first experience working full-time for the church, and then um, growing as I began to build my secular career, uh, growing into a, a sense that the diaconate might be the way to pursue this calling. So what do you think it was that year that you spent working for the church? What is why did your spiritual life fall apart? Was it, was it, did you see the, the kind of the ugly side of how parishes can work or was it just, it was, it was a little bit of, it was a little bit of that, um, um, but not that specifically. I mean, I've grown up in parishes uh, since I was a kid, so I'm not really surprised by what happens in parishes. That's been yeah. the milieu for me. Um, what I found most frustrating was a, a disjunction between what was being preached and what was actually being done. And using myself as an employee, as an example, uh, our priest would get up in the pulpit and, and preach about how awful it was that in Chicago, people were spending 60% of their wages just on housing. And I would think to myself, well, you're not paying me very much. And so I'm spending more than that on my housing, uh, 
right here. I'm in your yeah. pews and I'm in your office and, and you don't see it. Um, you know, I was being paid like so many church employees are, but being paid less than half time so that the church wouldn't have to pay for insurance. Yeah. Um, my wife called the church one day and, and asked if she could talk to me on the phone. And somebody said, no, he's up on the roof chipping ice out of the gutters. And, and her, <laughs> her first thought was, what if he falls? I mean, what, you know, what if something happens? We don't have insurance. You know, we're not covered um, for the work uh, that you're actually doing. And it's that kind yeah. of disjunction that, that fed a sort of growing unease. Um, yeah. There's a gap between the idealism of the pulpit and the absolutely the reality absolutely. of absolutely, huh? Yeah, yeah. There's I I started to think about it in terms of the church universal, which I'm all for. I can totally get behind the church universal, uh, but the church particular, uh, it doesn't work too well in a lot of places, and we we've got these structures that that harm employees um, that are very unfortunate. Uh, and so I've tried in the places that I've served uh, to do better by our employees. It's not easy to do, um, but you know, from my own experience that in that first uh, job, uh, that became something that you know, was important to me. So you came out of a long line of priests, mm-hmm. but you wound up as a deacon, at least for a while. Well, for a good long while. <laughs> a couple of years ago, when we first met, you were a deacon at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a deacon for 21 years, um, essentially my mm-hmm. whole adult life, uh, through a variety of different uh, secular jobs, um, all part of a career that has been fairly consistent, but a bunch of different jobs working for a number of different companies. Um, so I spent many years uh, you know, in different jobs, serving four different parishes. Um, five different parishes as a deacon and, um, over the course of about 21 years. Yeah. Yeah. So was that, uh, a source of any disappointment for you? Uh, you, you said that when you were a kid, you'd kind of <laughs> yeah. envisioned yourself, uh, you said before as a, as a, a, a minister, but mm-hmm. the role models that you'd had for that had been priestly ministry and you wound up. They truly had. Yeah. You know, and we've so, just been, I uh, 21 years ago, we were still sort of recovering the diaconate in a lot of places. <laughs> Very much so. I, in fact, I remember in the discernment process in Chicago, uh, having to uh, help pull together a parish discernment committee to help think about whether I was called to the diaconate. And the yeah. first thing I had to do was educate them about what the diaconate was <laughs> and then demonstrate to them how I was called to that thing that I had just educated them about. <laughs> so, you know, there was not terribly widespread uh, knowledge of the diaconate. And mm. in places like Chicago, there were more deacons on the ground. There was a bit more um, consistency to the training program and to the deployment of deacons. But in a lot of places, um you know, diocese by diocese, uh, the bishops might just choose not to deploy deacons, not to use them uh, in that sort of separate uh, order uh, that that deacons really do serve in. So, it, and it was the the source of the sort of common refrain that I think most deacons uh, hear throughout their ministry. You know, when are you going to be ordained? You know, as if oh. the bishop hadn't put his hands on my head <laughs> in a big yeah. fancy service at the cathedral. Also, uh, when are you going to be ordained? That is to say, when are you going to become a priest? Which is what 
all of us think of when we think of a minister in the church. We think first of priests um, and yeah. only secondarily as, as deacons. So a lot of a lot of my vocational energy as a deacon was very much about promoting the diaconate as a viable alternative, but especially trying to promote the diaconate to younger people earlier in their careers who could pursue this bivocational path, this path of having two careers at once, of uh, actually bridging the church and the world by being in the world. Uh, you know, most deacons today are over the age of 60. You know, most hmm. deacons today are retired and they now have time to be a deacon. Uh, they do fantastic work. Uh, the deacons that I know, all of them serve very mm-hmm. generously and very capably, but they're serving in a new position after having done something else. Yeah. And I was always captured by this idea of deacons as bivocational ministers who are actively in the world and actively in the church. Um, so, so it occurs to me that, uh, yeah. that uh, you know, who knows who God will lead to this, uh, this show when it comes out. Um, <laughs> I'm operating under the assumption that it's going to be mostly Episcopalians, but I guess that's not true. So mm-hmm. can we just take a moment and yeah. I want to hear your definition of what deacons are. Mm-hmm. And also, you talked about this kind of, uh, you know, being asked when you're going to get ordained. I think we should uh, take a moment to explain the transitional diaconate versus the vocational mm-hmm. or permanent diaconate. Sure, wouldn't mind a bit. Um, in 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 my understanding, uh, the church has three orders of ministry. Uh, orders are those who are ordained, uh, set apart to serve in a particular way. Uh, Those orders of ministry are the diaconate, the priesthood, and the episcopate, deacons, priests, and bishops. Um, Bishops, we're all pretty clear, are ordained as keepers of the faith and leaders of uh, the institutional church. Uh, They have particularly strong roles in in that uh, teaching and preaching ministry. Um, Priests are, are ordained as the minister of a congregation. Generally, uh, they're the local minister of a specific community. Although many priests also, you know, take that priestly ministry out into the world in different ways, as chaplains, for example, or as professors and teachers. Um, deacons are ordained, in my understanding, as assisting ministers to the bishop and assisting ministers in the congregation in which they serve. Uh, So there's kind of this vision of deacons as people that the bishop can deploy uh, if need be. So I need someone who knows about uh, gun control, for example, in the Diocese of Chicago, and I know in the Diocese of Milwaukee, uh, the issue of gun control was something that was very much on the minds of bishops, and they assigned deacons to be their ministers to help represent uh, the church's teaching in that area, uh, to be an advocate and so on. Um, so deacons have this kind of unusual role as as serving bishops, but also assisting in the context of a local parish. So where priests are the sort of gathering uh, figure around whom the community gathers, especially at the altar for the Eucharist, deacons in a way are the sending ministers, um, you know, urging the congregation out into the world uh, to serve in Christ's name. Hmm. Gathering and sending. I like that. Yeah. 
gathering and sending are kind of these visual images uh, of priests and of deacons. So they have complementary ministries, mm-hmm. not contradictory. They're not they're not uh, competing with one another at their best, um, but they're complementing one another's ministries. One of the challenges, though, is that for let's say roughly a thousand years, the church didn't do much with deacons. This is just historically. The church just didn't do much with deacons, and the diaconate became in history a stepping stone on the way to the priesthood. Um, And so priests needed to demonstrate a little bit of competence in their ministry before they were let loose as priests. So they served for a time as deacons to kind of uh, prove that competence. It's like an internship or a curacy. You're a curate. You're kind of practicing before you're let out on your own. Um, And so the transitional diaconate is this historic artifact of the preparatory period for priests. Uh, Priests are identified by the church to be priests, Mm -hmm. and they go to seminary to become a priest, and then they get ordained as a deacon, but everybody thinks they're a priest, and they're really preparing to be a priest, and they're not really serving as a deacon because in, in their mind is, I'm getting ready to be a priest, and six months from now, I'm going to be a priest. So it's just this awkward kind of remnant, yeah. uh, in my mind. Uh, others will have very, very different arguments about why the diaconate before the priesthood. I just happen to think that the church is preparing you to be a priest. And you have this awkward six-month period where you have to serve as a deacon before you can actually be ordained to the thing that you've been called and educated to do. Mm. So, so we're stuck with kind of two different models of what deacon and priest are and how they're related to each other. Yeah, so when do you, when did we start kind of recovering the idea of, of the diaconate as its own ministry with its own integrity fairly recently? In the, in the Episcopal Church, it's uh, really since about the 1940s or 50s, mm. uh, there were deaconesses uh, and uh, men who were ordained as deacons. And there have been several waves of the diaconate, if you will, uh, that range from ordaining somebody as a deacon out in the wilderness just to, just to do their ministry uh, to ordaining people who really just want to be assistants at the altar to serve as deacons in a sacramental role only, but they see their ministry really confined to the parish church, uh, to a fuller understanding that's really only since the 60s or 70s of the diaconate as a full and equal order, as a separate vocation with its own uh, gifts and skills and and directions. Um, And that recovery has been happening in the Roman Catholic Church and in the Episcopal Church essentially around the same time, you know, and Vatican II was one of the spurs to uh, the opening up of the diaconate as a full and equal order, as a separate order that people could be called and ordained to. And so it's only in the last, you know, 40 years or so that, that these questions uh, have, have, you know, started picking away at the understanding of the transitional diaconate, especially, um, Let's get back to to the other career. I yeah, we know each other through church, <laughs> and if if all else fails, I'll stay on the church track. But that's right. Um, but you have this other vocation, indeed, indeed. Tell me that story. Sure, sure. You know, I told I mentioned that uh, my first job was uh, as secretary and sexton at an Episcopal church uh, outside of Chicago, 
And uh, within a year, uh, I had gotten a job at the Field Museum in Chicago. I was the assistant to the director of development, the fundraising uh, vice president for the Field Museum. And what I think is most germane about that first uh, full-time job is that my boss trusted me to take on new projects. And he's, he was particularly good at identifying what people were capable of uh, that they might not expect themselves to be capable of. And so I came into work one day and he dumped on my desk a database conversion project uh, that he wanted me to lead uh, to bring our fundraising database at the Field Museum uh, up into the modern age, uh, to take it from the old clunky mainframe uh, database to a new database that could sit on people's computers right on their desk and be much more useful uh, for fundraising. And I jumped into that project and discovered uh, that I really enjoyed the, the work of translating the data into something that could be better used and helping people to learn how to use the data to improve the way they worked. And so I did that uh, at the Field Museum for the better part of 10 years. I, I worked for him two separate times at the Field Museum uh, with a gap in between. But basically, the better part of the first decade of my career was spent at the Field Museum. Did, did you have any sort of formal training for that sort of thing or did you just kind of uh, no. stumble in <laughs> <laughs> i was i was an english major and i was a smart college student and you're probably good at this and you know dump here's a project for you <laughs> uh, luckily uh, a lot of my training in english was also training in logic and language um, and database work is a lot about understanding the logic of the programmers who built the database. Mm -hmm. What were they thinking when they put this all together? And if I can get inside their thinking, then I'll understand best how to, how to implement this project, uh, how to make the data work in a way that's going to be usable. Um, so it worked out well. <laughs> well, it worked, turned out to work well at the Field Museum. Um, and the next move in my career was a sort of elevation of that experience. I got hired by the Northwestern Memorial Foundation in Chicago. Uh, Northwestern Memorial Hospital is the biggest hospital in downtown Chicago. It's an academic medical center. And their foundation does not only fundraising for the hospital per se, but also does the back office support for 18 other community fundraising organizations that raise money for hospital research or for hospital programs. So our database at Northwestern Memorial Foundation wasn't just one organization, it was 18 organizations in the same database. So it's, it's sort of like a career move that, you know, multiplied my responsibilities times 18. Uh, so that was kind of the peak of my 15 years in fundraising database management. Uh, after a few years there, I got shifted in an unexpected shift. I got shifted sideways into the clinical IT department. And so I had to take you know, 15 years of expertise in one kind of database management and quickly translate it into supporting neonatal note-taking software for the physicians or fetal monitoring uh, equipment for the labor and delivery department. Uh, because I was the newest member of the IT staff in the clinical department, um, I was the one with the catch-all uh, portfolio of every other program that nobody else 
wanted. <laughs> you know, so there'd be one person in charge of all the radiology software. And I got like a portfolio of a dozen different little programs. Um, that led, after a few years, uh, to a transition to join the vendor of one of the software programs that I was supporting at the hospital. It was a software program that was about dispatching housekeepers and transporters and giving data to nursing staff about the real-time availability of beds. Can we help the patients who are in the ER now get upstairs into a clean bed more quickly? Uh, Can we smooth out the processes that uh, get people to the right level of care sooner? And I joined that company called Teletracking uh, and spent eight years with Teletracking traveling the country. I came late to traveling for business. Uh, Most people do that when they're young in their careers. And I did it after 15 years or more uh, already in my career. And so I joined Teletracking uh, as a member of their sales team uh, to travel all over the country helping paint a vision uh, for healthcare leaders, for hospital administrators, about how they could improve their processes, they could improve their uh, revenues, they could get patients to the right level of care more quickly and more efficiently. Uh, It was all this kind of dispatching logic and, and efficiency tools. So it was learning a whole new language of you know, how do these processes and systems work today in healthcare and how can we transform them to make them work better? Um, so what was the balance between you actually working on the, the, the development of the product itself and, and then the, the, mm-hmm. the presentation side of things? Were you more marketing or more project management? Um, when I was in the clinical IT department at the hospital, I was basically, you know, on the support side of the equation. I was helping users to actually use the tools. And I was giving feedback to the vendors about what wasn't working well. Um, gotcha. And when I joined teletracking, I sort of flipped sides and became the vendor, <laughs> became the salesperson or mm-hmm. the expert who supported the salesperson. Uh, and so I sort of carried into this, this new role uh, my experiences having been you know, the user of the software, you know, so now I'm very, I'm very concerned in the presentation work that I do now that I tell the truth about exactly how the thing works and that I don't promise something that we don't actually deliver, um, you know, <laughs> that I am I'm clear and consistent in the way that I describe how things actually do work um, because I was on the other side of that for a good long time. So before I became a, a priest, I was a software engineer and we would always mm-hmm. have this slight friction with the people in the, the marketing <laughs> side of things because they'd always be promising stuff that. That's right. Uh, That's right. And it would, it would always be, you know, uh, promised within half the time that we would be able to develop that, that thing. So, Correct. Correct. Yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm of the, I'm of the mindset that I want to know what your roadmap looks like if you're the software developer so that I can say, this is what we do today, which is fabulous, and it's going to help you change in X, Y, Z ways. This is where we're headed with it, though. So join us, and you'll you'll follow us in this direction mm-hmm. as we make it better and better. Um, but that's not going to happen, and I'm not going to promise when that's going to happen. But I want you to understand where we're going. Yeah. Uh, so that's sort of the first 15 years. What What year are we talking about? By by now, um, so I joined Field Museum in 1990, mm-hmm. and so um, by 2013, 
I had been at uh, teletracking, uh, traveling uh, for just about eight years. Okay. So 1990 to 2013, about 23 years uh, at this point in my career. And he's still down in Chicago at this point? Uh, no, we had moved to Wisconsin uh, by this point. So instead of taking the train down to Chicago, uh, five hours each day of commuting back and forth to Chicago, uh, when my boss at Teletracking said, how are you going to handle this work travel all over the country? I said, look, any day that I don't spend five hours traveling, that's a net benefit. You're giving me all this time back. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I've always appreciated uh, you know, the traveling life uh, as actually giving me a bit more free time uh, in any given day. Even though I take a lot of airplane flights or I you know, have to get a rental car to get to the hotel, most days I'm not actually spending five hours on the move. Yeah. Well, you're on the road right now. I'm on the road right now. I'm talking to you from my hotel room, yeah. which is my normal habitat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're not still at Teletrack? No. Uh, a, another unexpected uh, transition happened uh, in 2013. Uh, I lost my job at teletracking because of my uh, problem drinking and had to enter mm -hmm. into recovery uh, and begin um, uh, the process of becoming sober. And so that was a, another unexpected shift in my career path. Uh, it took uh, about another year uh, before I found full-time work again. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that full-time work, though, was in the company that I had identified as my dream company, even while I was working at Teletracking. Um, huh. Every once in a while, we would uh, host a conference, and the specialist from the advisory board company would come to do a presentation about what's going on in the larger world of healthcare. You know, the expert on the stage would come and, and give us this vision of where things were headed. And I thought to myself, I want to be that expert, you know, who flies in, gives the presentation, flies on to the next place. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. That's sort of my dream uh, travel job. And I did get a job with uh, the advisory board company, uh, but doing leadership development training. So all along, my career has been about helping people to use data to improve the way that they work. And some of the tools that people need are not just data, but their techniques, um, their new ways of thinking about themselves as a leader. Mm -hmm. And so I was hired by the advisory board company to do talent development, uh, to do training with hospital managers and directors. Uh, who are being promoted into new positions of responsibility, um, but might not have some of those evergreen business skills like teamwork and accountability and data-driven decision-making and influence and change leadership. And so I've presented on dozens of topics to healthcare managers and directors um, for the first year that I was at the company. Another sideways shift <laughs> moved me from the clinical side of the consulting practice to the higher education side of the consulting practice. I was brought over to the education advisory board, where I now work, to help launch a data and analytics program that helps provosts and deans and chairs at a university to make wiser decisions, uh, to be better at budget reallocations and, make, and making some of the challenging financial trade-offs that they have to make as they run their academic departments, uh, as they run the business of higher education. So uh, in a way, I've sort of circled back to the same role that I was in uh, at Teletracking. You know, I'm on the road all the time. I'm working with a team of salespeople to help introduce the 
these concepts to leaders in higher education. So I've just shift, shifted industries, um, but I'm doing very similar work to what I had done before. So do all of your employers, your your uh, secular employers, do they know you're a deacon as well? Do you do you bring those worlds into each other? I, I really do. And and in fact, the the most interesting to me was that while I was working at the Field Museum early in my career, I was, as I said, undergoing the discernment process to the diaconate. And um, at the time, the Diocese of Chicago had this idea that the the deacon candidate and the parish and the diocese should each contribute a third of the cost of the training uh, so that deacon's school would be somewhat affordable for the students. Uh, Well, I actually uh, submitted a tuition reimbursement request at the Field Museum for my tuition to the deacon school, and they paid for it. So the Natural History Museum in Chicago paid a third of my training to become a deacon in the Episcopal Church. Um, and I, I, I pitched it with the sort of idea that, you know, I'll become a better employee and a better leader and da 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 but they still, they reimbursed my tuition. <laughs> did, did they reimburse tuition for other people, or is this a... Yeah, they would, this was part of a, a sort of normal employee benefit. Okay. You know, if you're you're taking classes or something, you could get tuition reimbursement. Hmm. So, but I thought it was kind of funny that I was not taking classes in biology or <laughs> anthropology or zoology or <laughs> uh, anything like that. Uh, but they still reimburse my tuition. Um, but yes, all the way along, uh, people have known that I'm uh, you know serving in a different role, and every once in a while it. It comes to the fore. Uh, I was working at Northwestern Memorial Foundation um, when the attacks on 9-11 took place. And um, Chicago emptied out of workers immediately. People literally got to Chicago, heard that there had been an attack in New York, and got on the next train home and left the city. But I was working for a hospital. And hospital employees were put on emergency uh, standby. So even those of us who were not in the clinical departments at the time uh, were put on emergency standby. We stayed in town in case there should be some uh, issue. And I remember the vice president that I worked for came into my office and, and asked me clearly, would you be willing to talk to people who might be struggling today? It was one of the clearest wow. calls to ministry that I've ever heard. He said, we need you. Would you serve in this way? And I said, well, yes, of course I, I would. Hmm. Um, so sometimes it, it really does uh, come to the fore. Most times it, it's just something that people know about in the background. I don't necessarily make a big deal out of it, but people do know. Hmm. Did that manager, did, did he have any sort of uh, religious practice of his own? I'm I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. And uh, but I do find it interesting that in fact he was the only one who took advantage of his offer. Hmm. <laughs> uh, interesting. Uh, he was the one who who apparently needed somebody to to process things with and to talk with. Um, yeah. So you are no longer a deacon. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and I think the theme is unexpected shifts. <laughs> yeah. Because after 21 years as a deacon, um, our bishop, uh, Matt Gunter, uh, came to me about four years ago, uh, maybe a little bit more, and uh, invited me to his office and said, I have this 
uh, proposal for you. Uh, I would like for you to uh, accept ordination as a priest so that I can assign you as vicar of the Church of the Holy Apostles on the Oneida Indian Reservation near Green Bay. Uh, so it's a package deal. I, I want to make you a priest, and I want to have you serve at Holy Apostles. Hmm. Um, and and he said, you know, go home and pray about it and talk to your wife about it, and, and then, you know, let me know. Let me know what you think about this. And I went home and talked to Katrina about it, and she said, well, yeah, what a good idea. <laughs> okay, what a good idea. Um, and so that began a process of another, a third discernment process uh, in, in my life in the church of reflecting um, with a group of people from around the diocese, uh, and you were part of that group, uh, on you know what would be the the differences that I would face? What would be some of the transition points that I would face in in transitioning from ministry as a deacon to ministry as a priest? And what would be some of the challenges I want to prepare myself for? And what would be some of the strengths that I would bring uh, to that uh, new kind of calling? Um, and so. Uh, the discernment committee and the bishop and everybody uh, seemed to think it was a good idea. So I was ordained as a priest just a little over three years ago in December of 2016 and have been serving at Holy Apostles ever since. Were all of those expected uh, bumps in the road uh, accurate? The the sort of transition points, I think, yeah. very much were. Um, the, you okay. know, the, the sense of, and this is something I have thought about as I've thought about how my calling has changed over time, you know, in both my secular career and in my church career, um, it's been a, a gentle transition from being the task doer to being the leader and vision setter. You know, in my mm -hmm. professional life, it started with literally transcribing database conversion uh, <laughs> tables, you know, this yeah. data point in the database now becomes that data point in the new database. <laughs> it was manual. It was hand done. I, yeah. And I did the task, <laughs> right, <laughs> um, to a new kind of vocation where I'm talking about a vision of how a whole team of hundreds of people could help you change the way that you work. But I'm the one who's out there helping set the vision and the direction that you might choose to follow. Hmm. Um, and it's very much the same in church work. You know, deacons are doers, and um, I've, I'm learning and trying to remember um, that I don't necessarily have to be the doer in the same way that I was before, um, but th that my role is a little different, that part of what I'm trying to do is, is you know, be consistent in communicating a vision for what we're up to as a parish, uh, reminding people of what we need to accomplish uh, but letting other people do the work uh, and letting other people understand how their work rolls up to this vision that we're trying to pursue. So th that's been kind of an ongoing, you know, an ongoing transition, both in my, you know, day jobs and in my church uh, work is that transition from doer to vision leader in a way. There's still plenty to do, and there's a lot of specific tasks that are just on my plate and not on anybody else's. But uh, one of those tasks is kind of connecting things to a larger sense of purpose, a larger sense of vision. Yeah, because uh, so how many days out of the week are you able to be at Holy Apostles? <laughs> Relatively few. <laughs> Relatively few. Uh, the nature of my work travel 
is that I'm on the road four or five days every single week. Um, and the travel doesn't coalesce until just about a week before. So it's, it's not, un, not unusual that on a Wednesday, I will find out that I'm actually traveling somewhere different next week than I expected to. Um, so that's been having to help the parish learn that they're actually completely capable of dealing with anything that comes up and they can call me or email me and, you know, they don't have to wait for a decision uh, for me to actually be there in person. Mm -hmm. um, that things can just bubble along perfectly nicely. Um, and then we see each other every Sunday and, you know, I'm there as many, as many times as I can be, but it's relatively fewer um, than I even would have expected just because my work travel is so unpredictable. What happens if something like a, a funeral pops up or a pastoral emergency? You know, people people wind up in the hospital uh, on their own schedule. That is true. That is true. Uh, one of the gifts of my ministry is that I serve alongside a deacon, uh, uh, a woman of the parish who's been ordained, I think, for 12 or 13 years. Uh, she is an Oneida woman and has served in the community as a deacon uh, for a good long time. And she does most of the pastoral visiting during the week. Uh, so she'll visit folks in the nursing home. Uh, she'll take communion to folks uh, who are shut in. Um, I'm doing some of that uh, communion visiting now on Sundays after church. Uh, but you know, my deacon is the primary pastoral visitor uh, in the parish, uh, just because I'm not physically able to be present uh, in that way. Um, but the local nursing home that does most of the funeral uh, services for the Oneida Reservation they know to call me first before they talk to the family about a potential funeral at Holy Apostles because I can. I do have some ability to rearrange my work travel um, as needed, and it has been needed uh, more than I ever would have expected. Uh, the bishop did not tell me about the part where I would do 75 funerals in three years Oof. at Holy Apostles. <laughs> and so one of, one of our primary ministries to the larger community is to serve as a place where uh, people are are buried from the church. Um, and in that way, we're sort of like the English parish church, uh, which is mm. available to all members of the community. Um, many of the people that are buried from holy apostles are not regular churchgoers. They might be relatives of people who are buried in our cemetery. Um, they might just need a place to have a funeral, and we serve as that place for them. Hmm. Um, so funerals are the, the largest single part of my ministry, uh, other than Sunday morning worship. Um, and you, you yourself are not Oneida. I am not, uh, and in fact, <laughs> one of the one of the things that popped into my head as the bishop was making his pitch uh, uh, was the words of St. Paul to the Corinthians, where he says, I resolved to know nothing among you, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am not Oneida. I am not Native American. I am Scottish on both sides as far back as we can trace. Mm -hmm. um, what I know is the church stuff. And what I have to learn from my parishioners is what it means to be a Native American and to be an Oneida person, uh, to be an Oneida person and a Christian, what does it mean for them? Um, I'm, I am very much in the learning mode about those indigenous concerns, about those cross-cultural kinds of concerns. Hmm. Yeah. How have, 
how have you learned? How, what, <laughs> what is the, the mode of that learning? So it, it takes a variety of different tones. Uh, one of the members of the parish, Gordy McClester, is essentially the historian of the Oneida tribe. He's written 15 books on Oneida history, co-authored with a professor at uh, SUNY uh, in New York. And so Gordy gave me a reading list when I first started. Basically, here, you know, <laughs> here's your <laughs> assignment. <laughs> and I, have, I am a good reader and a fast reader. And so I've, I've done a lot of self-study, not only a, about the things that Gordy's written about, but other uh, Native American authors and Native American Christian authors, uh, particularly. Um, my senior warden, though, is also uh, uh, delighted to meet with me for coffee basically every week and assist in my decolonization. <laughs> so I have fantastic, fantastic conversations with Richard, uh, who himself is Ojibwe, not Oneida. And so he's even bringing a different perspective mm. um, because there are differences in the way the Oneida people think about the world and relate to the world and how he as an Ojibwe uh, man uh, relates to the world and thinks about the world. And so um, we meet for coffee uh, basically every single week. And so it's this ongoing process of decolonization uh, <laughs> that I appreciate <laughs> and testing assumptions. You know, it's a, it's a, helpful feedback to to have some of your cherished uh, assumptions about how the world works um, put to the test yeah. because it doesn't work that way for everybody and you know certainly differently for a tall well-spoken white man uh, who travels on business and lives a very corporate life mm -hmm. uh, than it might uh, uh, you know that it might be for somebody who has lived on the Oneida reservation for their whole lives yeah. Um, or who had to leave the reservation and go work in Milwaukee because they couldn't find jobs uh, and are now an urban Oneida uh, whose experience of the world is very, very different. Um, so it takes time to learn what other people's lives are like. It sounds to me like your your whole career, both both strains of your vocation have been about winding up in unfamiliar settings and figuring out how ministry looks here. I think there's an element of that. I sometimes refer to it as translation, mm -hmm. um, that a lot of the work that I do is translating between different cultures or thought processes, you know, in, in the, you know, using data to improve your work mode. It's always helping people think differently about how they do the things they do uh, to help them understand that there could be a completely different way to do the things they do that might be easier or might serve their students or their patients uh, better. Um, so translating between what is going on today and what might be tomorrow is part of it. Um, certainly in the church world, uh, there's been, I think, a strain of helping people to understand the Christian origins of the things they do helping people to understand and claim their own ministry as part of their life in Christ. So, you know, I, I mm -hmm. run this 5K to support uh, people suffering from this illness because I am a Christian, not mm -hmm. separate from the fact that I'm a Christian. That was a large part of my teaching as a deacon, uh, was trying to help people make those connections between their ministries and lives outside the church um, and their identity uh, as Christian people. Um, reinforced, I hope, inside the church. Um, but, but my approach 
my approach, I think, has always been what I learned from my father, which was, you know, that you come into a new community, you come into a new parish. Uh, we moved a lot uh, as a family from one parish to another. And essentially, you come into a place and you love the people. Hmm. That, that's just it. Um, you're just putting yourself at their service um, and, and loving them, whatever that shape is that's going to take. Um, and it's going to be different in every community, uh, what you're going to be asked to do or how you're going to be asked to help. Uh, but it's that sort of stance of you know, coming at it with a willingness just to love them as they are and see what happens. <laughs> just love the people. That'll preach. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sure does. <laughs> All right. Well, what, uh, what is, would you say, the greatest joy of your calling? complicated yeah. set of callings and I'm sure one, one joy is going to be sure. hard, but sure. Do your best. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I alluded, I alluded to it uh, just a moment ago where for me, the greatest personal joy is helping people catch a glimpse of a still more excellent way. Hmm. as St. Paul would have said it, um, helping people catch a glimpse that there is something better than they expected. Um, it takes the form, uh, very different forms in different parts of my life. But, you know, so much of the work that I do uh, in higher education is helping people think about a still more excellent way uh, to do their daily work as administrators or to serve the students that are their charge at the university or the college. Um, in church settings, it's most particular, I think, in funerals helping people who are grieving to see a still more excellent way than they have ever expected. Um, this may be the only time that people will hear about the love of God for human beings and what that means, even for those of us who are grieving uh, the loss of a family member or a friend, um, helping people see that there is something more excellent uh, going on is for me, the joy that, that, animates most of my work um, on both sides of my work. Um, Conversely, what's the hardest part? If, if there's just one. Yeah. If there were just one, I would say the hardest part truly is the funerals. Um, because I approach every funeral as an occasion to preach the gospel, uh, to preach the resurrection. Um, and it's hard mostly because I relatively rarely am able to know the person who has died, um, primarily because they're not really connected in a regular sense with the parish. Uh, they're distant relatives or people who just want to be buried uh, at Holy Apostles. So they're not necessarily people who are well-known to me at all. Um, and so it, it's a very difficult challenge to learn enough about the person who has died to help their family members um, in this bewildering moment. Uh, many of these uh, family members are not churchgoers. They're, they're not regular in their uh, life of faith. They may not have much of a life of faith that's connected to any kind of church. And so trying to help them navigate the grief process um, as best I can in the limited way that I'm available to them, uh, that's, partic that's particularly hard. 
See, I thought you were going to go with something like uh, just balancing the 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 two different uh, jobs, but I guess you've, you've got a lot of practice. Yeah. <laughs> That's just like day to day tough. Um, I, you know, my my travel plans change at the last minute every single week. So that's not unusual. That's not hard. I just call our travel agents if I have to <laughs> and have them change the flight, yeah. you know, just rebook the hotel. You know, it, 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 it actually is less of a burden than it appears uh, to folks who don't do this for a living. Um, if you're temperamentally suited to this kind of traveling life, um, those kinds of logistical things are not that great a burden. Um, but it does often mean that I find myself elsewhere from where I would prefer to be. Yeah. You know, that there's somebody at the parish who could use some help, but I'm across the country or there's a colleague who could use some help in a meeting, but I'm stuck because I'm traveling somewhere and I can't actually help them. Um, that, that's just tough because you want, you want to be as helpful as you can to the people that you work with and the people that you serve. Um, but it's just not always possible. So circling way, way back to that sure. year that you spent as the secretary in Sexton, you said that that, uh, the, that you noticed that working with the church for that year caused your spiritual life to tank, your prayer life, mm-hmm. to really mm-hmm. run out of steam. So what's the shape of your prayer life now? How does your, your vocational situation, your context shape your prayer life? How do you keep up with, mm-hmm. with your spiritual mm-hmm. life? Yeah, it's a terrific question. And I think about three different primary elements of of prayer life for me. Um, the first uh, for years now, for more than 25 years now, has been uh, praying the daily office of the Episcopal Church. Um, for those who are not Episcopalians, the daily office is the morning and evening prayer services, uh, that come with a lectionary, a set of assigned readings for every morning and every evening, and uh, praying the daily office using those set forms of prayer and using the Bible reading um, that comes along with it has been the foundation of my spiritual life uh, for going on 25 years now. Um, you have some videos, right, that I've got uh, some videos called Daily Office Basics that links will be in the <laughs> details of the podcast. Yeah, they will be in the show notes. Um, I've spent I spent several years writing uh, reflections on the Daily Office as, as a way of trying to help other people kind of uh, catch interest in or, or help people to, to take on this practice. Um, but in a way, even more important than the Daily Office was my experience of um, entering recovery uh, for alcoholism and practicing sobriety. Um, There's a moment in, I think it's the third step of Alcoholics Anonymous, that talks about making our way toward a faith that works in everyday life. Uh, And you can be as knowledgeable and as, uh, you know, deeply uh, aware of the Bible and of the set forms of prayer and of the practice, you can be really, really, really good at the practice and still not have a faith that works. And um, in in my experience, uh, practicing sobriety has been the added spark to my own faith uh, that helps that faith to work. I'll give you one very concrete example. Uh, in the 
in the forms of prayer, morning prayer and evening prayer, it's optional to begin the service with the confession of sin. Uh, I happen to know the rubrics, the directions in the prayer book, tell us that you could omit the confession of sin. Great, fine. As a church geek, I know that I can omit the confession of sin. As a recovering alcoholic, for whom daily self-examination is a critical part of maintaining my sobriety, I know that I can't omit the confession of sin because that's what it is. <laughs> it's a daily self-examination that helps me to uh, you know, repent of the things I've done, uh, to promise to do better today uh, with God's help. Um, it's not optional. And so the insights that I've learned from practicing recovery in many ways have really transformed my own practice of the daily office. Uh, it deepened it significantly for me. Uh, it's led me to some insights about um, both recovery and prayer um, that I shared uh, this past Christmas, uh, again, a series of blog posts that I wrote about uh, the 12 steps of Christmas. Mm. Uh, basically, uh, taking this recovery lens and looking at the church's prayer through that lens. Um, so that, for me, has been a very, very deep uh, well of insight. But there's one other, uh, the third area of my prayer life that I just love, which is the company that I work for creates these tools called infographics, <laughs> nice little web-based graphics that distill a complicated subject down into quick and easy steps or you know, give you guidance about four things you should uh, do or five things that you should remember. And my company put out an infographic a few years ago called How to Be Data-Driven. Now, this is our daily work. This is what we teach everybody all the time, how to be data-driven in your work. Uh, well, I've translated that into how to be data-driven in your prayer life. And so my work life is, in fact, helping inform my prayer life. And so the five ideas that we share in that infographic are things like be data literate. For me, that means read the Bible. You know, you got to read the source material. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to practice. You got to practice uh, with the, the daily office. You got to just be data literate. You got to get your hands on the material. Um, second, be curious. That means be willing to ask questions. You know, uh, processes like Lexio Divina or holy reading, where you kind of ruminate over a verse. You know, be curious about it. Let it let it take you uh, where you're not expecting it to. Uh, be action-oriented is idea number three. Be action-oriented. That's a way of saying, ask God what you should do in response to what you're reading or what you're praying. You know, don't just pray, but ask God, well, what should I now do about it? Um, be communicative. Talk with others like I'm doing with you right now. Talk with others about what you're learning or what you're reading. Uh, get other people's insights. And then finally, be skeptical. Hmm. And this is one that I love. Um, and for me, skepticism means being skeptical about my own ideas just as much as anybody else's ideas. Yeah. The, the notion that I might be the first person who's ever thought of this <laughs> in a 3,000-year-long religious tradition, that's just not humble. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so being skeptical or being humble means being willing to admit other people probably know something about this that I don't. Mm. And if I would listen to them, maybe I could learn something from them. So in a, in a kind of funny way, my, my work life has also informed my prayer life. You know, these ideas about uh, being data-driven in your prayer life <laughs> uh, 
you know, kind of, I don't know. They speak to me. I, I don't know if they'll speak to others, but yeah. <laughs> they certainly speak it to me. Sounds like there's a book in that. You could write that up. <laughs> well, you've got a, 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 a blog a, piece about it. Yeah, I do. I have a blog post about it. And okay. in fact, I've got a, there's a tool you can get that takes your blog posts and turns them into a Word document so that you can start editing your book. <laughs> and I've actually <laughs> taken, taken the first step of at least getting all of my blog posts for about five years um, into a Word document. I don't know if I'll ever do anything with them, but it'd be kind of fun to try. <laughs> what advice do you have for someone else who's considering the same track, whichever version of, you know, bivocational mm -hmm. or the, the, the permanent diaconate or making a transition from the diaconate to the mm -hmm. priesthood? Yeah. Yeah. Your vocation story is a little complicated. So <laughs> I've got a lot of twists and turns in it. Yeah. For anyone yeah. who, who wants to follow in your footsteps, um, <laughs> Other other than praying for, for the Lord's mercy on them. <laughs> That's right. That's <laughs> what, right. Um, what advice? So um, I think basically a couple different things. Uh, the first for me is on the question of bivocational. If, if anything that I've said about being bivocational piques your interest, uh, the first suggestion that I would have is that I would urge listeners to think about whether they feel called, in fact, to pursue two careers, not just to have two jobs, uh, whether you, in fact, feel hmm. equally called to do A and B, uh, whether you feel that it's in the intertwining of two things that that you find your your passion, you find your joy. Um, that would be my first sort of leading question. Um, but I think underneath that is what I've learned over the course of my career is that, you know, in the course of your career, you're going to have dozens of jobs. You're going to move to many different places. Um, the question to ask is what's the sort of consistency between those different places? What's the thing that I do in every job that I hold? What's the thing that I find passion in, no matter where I'm serving or who I'm serving with. Uh, if you can work to identify the thing that um, gives you joy, like we talked about a few minutes ago, um, that will help you as you think about how you might serve in a new place. You know, so I, you know, I've come to learn over the years that I'm very much more about, you know, preaching a vision. I'm about, you know, helping people kind of catch a new idea or see what might be possible but I'm also very much about trying to just simplify the day-to-day -day processes. Things don't have to be as hard as we usually make them. <laughs> and if we could yeah. just get out of our own way, then we'd have a little more time to spend just loving each other and not you know, getting so frustrated with each other. So there's a couple different yeah. elements of my work that have held true, even through all of these twists and turns, even through all of these changes in job or changes in uh, ministry, um, you know, that I think the intertwining for me is where the energy is and anything I can do to help people see a better way of working that's maybe a little simpler so that we have a little more time to enjoy each other's company. Um, you know, those are the kinds of things I'd, I'd invite people to think about, you know, what is it that, that I'm about? What is it that I want to accomplish? 
So you can do that in different kinds of jobs, in different kinds of ministries. Um, but what is it for you uh, that where you get that kind of passion? Hmm. All right. The wrap-up questions. How can <laughs> people reach you? What social media or email or... Well, you can reach me. You can reach me on LinkedIn and Facebook uh, under the name Roger Patience, R O D G E R Patience, all one word. You can reach me on Instagram at Roger dot Patience, R O D G E R dot Patience, um, and then my blog is called the Daily Office Anchor Society, Daily Office Anchor Society dot com, um, and you can reach me there on the blog. All right. All those links, of course, will be in the show notes, uh, as well as if, if, if possible, this is a, the, as I was saying before, uh, we started recording the, uh, I'm not quite sure what the capabilities of, uh, the podcast host will be, but I'm also going to try and put up that photo of, of the young you, um, <laughs> at what age, how old were you in that photo? I was I was maybe two and a half. Uh, the the little the little date on the film. This is an old uh, Polaroid film. The little date on the film is August of nineteen seventy. So about two and a half. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What is a uh, book, movie, piece of music, some sort of popular culture that you would like to recommend? Doesn't have to be related yeah. to your vocation or anything like that. Just what do you what are you thrilled about that you want to share with other people? I want to recommend a uh, science fiction trilogy. I love science fiction and I love book series where you get to interact with the same characters over, over several books. Um, this is a trilogy by Becky Chambers called the Wayfarer series. And the first book in the series is called The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. <laughs> it's a wonderful, wonderful a great title. trilogy. Uh, Every book is completely different, but the trilogy basically um, raises big questions about things like artificial intelligence and identity and how we treat the dead and what are uh, the traditions and customs that we pass on to one another. Hmm. Over the course of three different novels, uh, you, you just get into good adventures and uh, thrilling questions about um, life and identity. Uh, very, very fabulous uh, set of books by Becky Chambers. Becky Chambers. All right. Are you a, a Kindle reader? I'm a Nook reader. So, <laughs> I've invested in the Barnes and Noble uh, infrastructure, but yeah, I'm a Nook reader yeah. and mostly consume books that way. Although my wife and I both enjoy listening to audio books. Um, she, yes. she and I both uh, have huge catalogs of audiobooks that we listen to, or we use the Libby app, which allows you to check out uh -huh. audiobooks from the library. That's another terrific way to do it. Good. Thank you. Yep. Well, Roger Patience, thank you very much for being the very first guest on this new podcast, uh, This Calling, Stories of Vocation. Yeah. So we know each other uh, through our mutual work here in the Diocese of Fond du Lac. I know that you have like this very rich uh, sort of vocational story, uh, the deacon thing, the priest thing, the bivocational thing, the sobriety thing, the white guy working on the Oneida reservation thing. I just love hearing your story again and again. So I thought this would make a great first, first episode. Well, thank um, you. So we'll, we'll see how this all unfolds and, and I'll have you back on the other podcast once that gets rolling. 
appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for the invitation. Bye-bye now. Well, thank you so much for sticking around all the way to the very end of episode one of This Calling, a brand new podcast. I guarantee that we will be uh, getting our feet under us over the next couple of episodes and everything will be getting better and better and better. So thank you for your patience. The first couple of episodes of any new podcast are always a little bit rocky. I've got a second podcast going as well uh, that will be launching very soon, I hope. That one is called Means of Grace, Hope of Glory. That is an exploration, an examination, conversations around the catechism in the Book of Common Prayer, kind of like question and answer, uh, introduction to the basics of Christian belief and practice as we have them in the Episcopal Church. So uh, look out for that coming soon. You can find out more about both of these podcasts on Twitter at Apple Tree Pods and on Facebook if you search for the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That is uh, where I will be putting up information about both of these podcasts, This Calling, The Vocations Conversations, and Means of Grace, Hope of Glory, Explorations into the Catechism. So that's all for now. I am your host, Chris Arnold. You can uh, reach me on Twitter if you want to at Apple Tree Pods. And uh, yeah, that's all for now. We're going to wrap this up and uh, launch it. Brand new podcast. Here we go. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now.